And thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast from Connect Church. We'd like to invite you to join us in person at 1101 West Grand in Ponca City, Oklahoma, or on Facebook Live. Go to connectchurchpc.com to learn more about how we are helping people connect every day. We are a people, connected people, all in God's love. place called Okeen. Is it? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Toby's from Okeen. I didn't mean that, Toby. It's a real life place. But, you know, you talk about being thankful. I'm thankful that my niece is here so that I don't have to go home and eat leftover turkey and noodles again for the fourth day in a row. And so now I have an excuse to take somebody out to eat and eat real food. But I'm also thankful for our veterans, and I, I want to I begin this morning by showing you guys a video, and then we want to thank our, our veterans properly. You want to play that video for us? I want you to know, I want you to know, I see you, paying for your coffee every morning, wearing that hat that tells me the infantry you dedicated your life to before I was even born. You may not know it, but I watch you with great admiration. And thank you for what you sacrificed. I see you in your full active duty uniform, walking through the store with your family. And I wonder how long you're here for, when you might have to go. I look at all of you and think, you must be some of the strongest people in the world. I see you on the TV. You're not just a face in the crowd of soldiers on the news. You're a person with a family who loves you, walking the dusty earth far away, so that I can walk in peace where I am. I see you at the memorial. You're not just a name, I know. You left a footprint of freedom on this earth, imprints and sacrifices that are not just remembered, they're cherished. I want you to know I see you. I haven't forgotten you. I admire you. I pray for you. All of you. God bless you and your families. We, we have some amazing veterans in our church, and I think of my good friend Dennis, who served and, and is a, an amazing veteran. And I, I love his heart and his passion. He gathered People a year and a half ago, maybe it was two years ago, to pray for our troops here locally. Um, and before Dennis, another good friend of mine, Gary, at the sit-down, when you know a veteran, you sit down and you ask them about where they've been and the stories that they tell. And some of it, I mean, it's heartbreaking stories, but some of it is really cool stories. Hey, I went to this place, I went to this place. But we are so thankful for men and women who have served our country and have saved us, preserved 
the grace and preserve the freedoms on which we stand. Back in 1988, there was a Polish railroad worker who was in, injured, and he was in a coma, and in a coma for nearly 20 years. He, he came out of the coma in 2007, and when he went into coma, he was in the midst of socialist Poland. And what socialist Poland was like was you didn't get your daily needs met, and so you would go and you'd stand in line, and you may or may not get food that day, you may not get your products that day, and, and you may not get your daily rations. It all depended if the store had enough for you that day. And another story that leads into this, when Gorbachev came to America back in the mid-80s, he thought it was a ruse that every grocery store he walked into had more than enough food because in the Soviet Union, there wasn't any food. Now this Polish worker, when he was injured, it was in the height of the, uh, the Socialist Republic of Russia. Uh, of Russia. They were the height of the so socialism over there. And he's in this coma, 19 years later, he comes to, and he, he wakes up, and he goes out, and he immediately sees a difference. There's food. There, there, are, there are jobs to be had. There's people who are working. But the other thing that he noticed is nobody seemed happy. And it shocked him because for years, they'd argued, they fought, and they said, man, if we could only have freedom, if we could have food, we'd be happy. But he said, what I've noticed when I came to is everybody was looking at their phones. Everybody was upset. Everybody was discouraged. Nobody was thankful. And I know what you're thinking. I have a chalkboard up here. I'm going to draw a triangle. No, David, I am not drawing a triangle. So, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, everything's been about triangles. And in fact, I drew one the other day, and it was either Jack or Kenneth. I'll blame Kenneth. He's not here to defend himself. Well, not, not this Jack. But they crossed out the, the drill lines in the top half. They said, look, it's the, it was Kenneth. Look, it's the Illuminati. And I go, it's not the Illuminati. We'll get back to the triangle later. But we talk about thanks. And what does that look like? What, what are we thankful for? You know, I, I think about my family and, and how great it is to have family and have people that you love and people that you can, you can look into. And I, and I watch my boys grow up. and I've been married to, to my wife. We'll be celebrating 25 years this coming May. And, and we look at our boys and, and, and the way that they've grown. But not just that. But the way that God's answered prayer to put friends around our boys, it just encouraged them. And, and this morning I was talking to one of Lance's friends, and she was telling me what a great person he is. And, and I'm like, I didn't say that. But sometimes when someone tells you your, your child's great, you're like, do we know the same person? But to know that God answers those prayers and God, God pours in there. So you have family, you have, you have friends. You have church. I mean, to be able to come here in a place, and, and, and it was electric this morning, and you could, you could sense the expectation of what, what's getting ready to take place. And when we were worshiping, you could sense that, that God was moving, that something was happening. We, we talk about giving thanks. 
Uh, it, I'm thankful that I, that I came to adulthood in the mid-90s because uh, when, when I was in those developmental years between 20 and 25 in the 90s, life was, was great. Just want you to know that. Life was great in the 90s. Here was one of the reasons why it was great. The Nebraska Cornhuskers won three football championships in four years. The Denver Broncos won back-to-back championships, and the Atlanta Braves won a World Series, and so life was good. Also, I met and married my, my college sweetheart, so you know, life is, life is good when everything works out for you, but, but sometimes things don't work out for the best. We're looking around, we're saying, man, what do I have to be thankful for? You see, if you don't get in the habit of thanking God for what you do have, you'll soon become ungrateful because of what you don't have. How many times do you look at what other people have and say, man, I wish I had that? If I had this, I would be so happy. We look at what everyone else has. But this morning, as we talk about shout to the Lord, in Psalm 100, starting at verse 1, it says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are the people, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. William Shakespeare said this, O Lord that lends me life, lend me heart replete with thankfulness. What he's saying is, make me thankful. Make me thankful. Help me to, to realize what I have and to be thankful for what I have. And as we're, we're going through this, in, in the Hebrew, the, 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 the word for, for, for joy, the word for thanksgiving is ruha. And no, I'm not going to write in the Greek letters because I don't know how to, I mean, in the Hebrew letters, I don't know how to write Hebrew. But ruha, and it, it's talking about this joy, something that we take with us, something that we, we, we do. And, and everything that we, we talk about in, in chapter 100 is a celebration that is what has taken place in the previous five chapters. We're talking about a journey for joy. How many of us take journey with us on our joy? Or joy with us on our journey? But you've, you've got it. It's not something you just suddenly wake up one morning and say, hey, today I'm going to be joyful. You've got to take it with you. You've got to carry it with you. You've got to have that with you. In Psalm 96, verse 1, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. In 97 verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. 98 1, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. 99 verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. And then we come to 100 verse 1, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. He's saying there, there should be something joyful about us that we're seeing, that we're excited about what is taking place. That is what God is calling us to. When was the last time that you just realized, wow, this is what I'm thankful for? We can in a heartbeat name all the things that we're not thankful for, right? We, we can say, man, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't have this. 
but we don't realize what God has given us. But more importantly, here's the thing, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. He owns us. We are his people. And a friend of mine, his daughter wrote a great thing on Facebook that says, she was praying and saying, God, make me more like this. God, make me more like this. God, make me more like this. And she kept praying to become more like God when what she realized that she needed, Lindsay said, I needed to realize that I was owned by God. And I finally had the surrender and said, God, I'm yours, all of, all of yours. And we look at that, we hear it, we're like, well, I don't want to be owned by anything. But when we are owned by God, when we are the sheep of his pasture, when he takes care of us, when he understands us, when he calls us by name, how powerful is that? There's something powerful when we know that we worship a God. It says in, in verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. The better way of saying this is acknowledge God. He's saying, know the, the God, know Yahweh, know the Lord, that he is God. Such a commitment would be sorely needed in a, in a pantheistic culture in which the Hebrews grew up in. They needed to know that there was one God. They needed to know that their God was the God. And we still need our present society because we have so many little gods that force God away from us. I heard a pastor say this with them. I love this. Ego. You know, ego is all, all about me, all about I. When I talk about number one, he said a great way of knowing about the ego is ego is edging God out. So anything in our life that edges God to the side, that pushes him to the side, that becomes our God. What is in your life that's number one? What is in your life that you think about, you, what you go to sleep at night thinking about, you wake up in the morning thinking about? What is it that is your God? I know, you're, you're saying, well, Mark, that you're, you're, you're getting too close to home. You're talking about things you, you should be talking about. Get back in your lane. But where do we first see that the, the statement, the Lord is God? Elijah on Mount Carmel. So Elijah was God's prophet. And, and when Elijah was called by God, there were all these false prophets. They were the prophets of Baal, and Baal was the harvest god. And so they would come and they would sacrifice. They would sacrifice their children before the prophet, before the god of Baal, so that they would have a, a fruitful harvest. They would make other sacrifices. And Elijah came in and he said, This is not right. God told us that we are to serve him and serve him alone. But there were 400 prophets of Baal that came up against him. And what is Elijah going to do? Elijah was by himself. And there's 400 over here. And again, it's like Ashley said, math doesn't work in God's economy. I mean, it does, but his math is different than our math. Because when God was with Elijah, it was more than 400 prophets of Baal. You've got to read the story. You've got you to understand how funny the story is. Because Elijah goes out there to the prophets of Baal, and he goes, okay, you guys start first. What they did was they, they put a sacrifice on wood, and whosoever God answered by fire would be the God that they would serve. And so Elijah says, hey, you go first. I didn't sleep well last night. I need to get a nap, so you guys go first. And so Elijah sits back, and they start dancing, they start hollering, they start screaming, and nothing's taking place. And then they start cutting themselves. They believe that they cut themselves and they bled that their God would answer because of the sacrifice that they were doing. And then, this is really funny, Elijah says, maybe your God Baal is on the toilet and can't, can't be disturbed right now. You should shout all the har har harder. 
he is basically trash talking him at this point. And I'm like, wow, Elijah, you've got it going on, buddy. For eight hours, they danced, they hollered, they screamed, and nothing happened. Elijah comes to the stage and goes, guys, 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 I've got a dinner appointment tonight. I've got to get home. Let me have a try. He goes up there, and he says, I, I think that we need to dump water over the offering. So they take these 12 large jars. Each jar would be about 40 to 50 gallons of water, and they dump it over the sacrifice. And they fill up the entire uh, ravine around the outside, and, and, and it's all filled with water. And Elijah pauses. And in a prayer that lasts about 45 seconds, I know what you're thinking. Why can't pastors only pray 45 seconds nowadays? But in 45 seconds, God answered it. Fire came down from heaven. It ignited the sacrifice on fire. It dried up all the water and the ravine around it. And they started chanting. When the people saw that, saw they fell prostrate before God and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The same thing that is being said here in Psalm 100. Verse 3, the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. The one that we serve, he is God. The, when he came to Moses, he said, I am. The I am, he is God. He says, there's nobody else. There's no one else but God. We acknowledge that, that he, is, he is the Lord. And I want you to know, whenever we acknowledge that God is Lord, revival takes place. I was on the radio with Ted Riley on Friday and after we got done, he was asking me some questions. He goes, hey, I, you know, I'm a believer like you. And he said, a lot of times in the fall, you see churches and hear churches on revival services. What is the deal with it? And I said, well, my professor, Dr. Mark Weeder, said we wouldn't need revival if we would just stay alive. And I said, the only reason we need revival is because we've fallen asleep or we've died. And so we need to reignite our spiritual fervor toward God. I go, but there's something about it when we come back to God, because revival does several things. One, revival is a confession of sin. In Ezra 10.1, it said, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they wept bitterly. Because Ezra was crying, and he's weeping, he said, my sin is great, I need forgiveness. And as people came around, they said, we want to be forgiven too, we want that to happen too. And so revival took place in, in Israel. Revival is a coming to life in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41. With many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Revivals are coming to life when people heard that they were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and that he came to save them. It, it brought them to life. They were cut to the heart, and they realized we, we, we need God, and so revivals are coming to life. But also revivals remembering that we belong to God. Psalm 95, 6-9 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, as you did in the day of Masa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. There, there comes a reminder that when God speaks to us, we have two decisions. We can either harden our hearts and turn away from God, or we can soften our hearts and turn into God. 
The choice is, is ours. We belong to God. We should always be thankful to God because we belong to his. He is our shepherd and we are his people. Do you know there are over 6 billion people on planet Earth and God knows each and every person's name? How many people do you know by name? The second thing, we come before him in praise. In verse 4, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks and praise his name. It's easy to praise God when things are going well, right? When, when everything's working out in life, you're like, hey, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Everything is great. My life is great. We can't wait to give, give a testimony and say, look what God is doing. But what about when things are not working out for us? What about when you have dreams of grandeur and it never happens? What about you have a goal in mind and, and, and it gets interrupted and you can't achieve the goal? What happens when bad things happen? Boyce Mouton writes this story when he ministered in California many years ago. He said, in 1954, a young missionary recruit to Alaska was stricken with a paralytic disease, which left her bedfast the last 10 years of her life. Her name was Marie Napier. The first time he met Marie was in her home in Sunnyvale, California. As he stepped in the front room, he immediately discerned the sickening pulsation of the breathing machine. It was a rocking bed, the first one he'd ever seen. The bed patient all was rocking back and forth in large gyrations. I don't know, it's way before our time, it's before my time, but I've been to museums before and I've seen what's called an iron lung. And so what an iron lung did is for those that had polio and the paralysis would take over, the iron lung would squeeze your body and then release it. So basically it was forcing your body to breathe from the outside in. A very painful thing, very, very uncomfortable thing. And this wasn't an iron lung, but later she gets put into an iron lung. Marie was emaciated and pale. She had not moved in over five years. And as he awkwardly tried to, to stare at her shriveled body, he says, I clumsily looked at her feet to conceal my expression of shock on my face. I raised my eyes to concentrate on her face, and there I saw a broad and understanding smile. Gradually I grew more comfortable in her presence, and we began to talk, and it was evident that even a simple conversation was a difficult task for Marie. She timed her words to coincide with the proper movement of the bed and spoke in short sentences. When I left there that day, I walked with an invigorated step. I'd been exposed to a contagious mixture of warmth and courage. He goes on to say, I'd visited Marie on several other occasions. Each time I found the same emotion when I left. I'd come to give, but I left receiving. The last time that he saw Marie, she was on her deathbed in Santa Clara County Hospital in San Jose, California. A pallor failure had stopped the rhythm of the bed. In the time she arrived at the hospital, the flame of her life was burning very low. He came in to share scripture and pray with her. The pulsing collar of the iron lung had left her neck chafed and raw. The doctor had given her a brief respite from the pain, painful iron lung, to a less efficient device that did not hurt her neck. It was a breathing shell, which was placed across her torso, 
As I stepped to her side and looked with her tired eyes, a faint smile broke out on her face and she gasped, I'm so thankful for my breathing shell. Boyce Mooden went on to write, at a time when many people would have cursed God for paralysis, the power failure, the pain, thousands of heartaches associated with suffering, Marie Nathan speaks from the gravy, sermon in a sentence, I'm thankful for my shell. For us, when things don't work out for us, how easy to say I'm thankful. When we go through heartache, when, when we go through loss, to say, I'm thankful. There's so many emotions when we lose someone we love and when, when we pray to God and we ask for healing and, and God says no. There's so many emotions that we feel and so many questions that we have and, and I'm sure we'll never have the answers to those questions on this side of eternity. But sometimes we just need to realize that we're thankful for God. In Psalm 107, it says, Let us give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them sacrifice a thanks offering and, give, and tell the works of the song forever. Here's the thing. We need to have an attitude of gratitude. We need to be grateful for the small things in life. When I was a little boy, we lived in western Nebraska. It was a rural town. We had a, a, a couple that came to our church. And when we would go to visit them, our entire family would, would go as a group because they lived out in the Sand Hills of Nebraska. And I realize that that may not mean much to you guys, but it took 45 minutes to get from our house to their mailbox. And then we had to park our car there, and he would come with a tractor and take us from the mailbox to their house. And they did not have running water. They did not have electricity. And even back in the early 80s, even though we had nothing fun going on, it was still kind of really boring. And we'd get back, and I mean, you'd spend the day, because you wouldn't travel out there an hour and a half, an hour and a half back, just to spend like a couple hours there. So you'd be out there for the majority of the day, and they were great people. In fact, I joke, they had, they had children that became missionaries in Africa, and I'm like, well, man, after growing up like that, Africa's easy. I mean, you're like, hey, go to Africa. There's no running water over there. Well, we didn't grow up with running water. Hey, go to Africa. There's no electricity over there. Hey, we didn't have electricity either. But you know the other thing about this family? They never, ever miss church. And sometimes in western Nebraska, it will snow, and it will snow a lot. You'll get dumped on. And so from time to time, you'd have to cancel church because of snow. Well, they did not have a phone. And so every once in a while, we would be sitting there in our parsonage, which is across the street from the church, and you would see them pulling the church on a John Deere tractor, because they're going to be there. And they never complained about it. They never said, well, I can't believe we don't have electricity. I can't believe we don't have this. They were just so thankful to God for what they had. How many times do we complain because we don't have the extra things in life. But finally, his love endures for faith forever and his faithfulness never ends. 
Psalm 105, Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. In this final verse, the psalmist describes Israel's God using three phrases, profound yet brief. Each one comes from an Old Testament creed to Yahweh. To call Yahweh good is not merely to speak of his character, but it identifies why life is worthwhile. He said that his love and faithfulness, his love, chesed, and his faithfulness can never end. There's no end to what God has given us. There's no end to his faithfulness that it's from beginning to end. There is no beginning. There's no end. You know, when we talk in, in weddings and I, I say, hey, you're going to exchange wedding rings. And the wedding ring is round. There's no beginning. There's no end. The same is true with your life and marriage that from this point forward, there's no beginning and end. You now and forevermore are a couple. But God's love and God's faithfulness, there's no beginning, there's no end. You can't separate it from us. God's love endures forever. We see this in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses said, can I see your glory? And God says, no one can see my glory and live. But he goes, I'm going to put you in this cleft in the, in, the, in the mountain. And when I walk by, you can see my glory as it passes by. And God's love endures forever. God's faithfulness is never ending. God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That comes straight from numbers. God is not like us. He is different. He is holy. He is set apart. A former senator, Matt Hatfield, talks about when he was touring India. And he went to go visit Mother Teresa, and she's showing him all around the, the gutters of Calcutta and, and the conditions that they're working in and the people they're working with. And in Calcutta, when, when people would have babies, they, they, they had this idea in their mind that they were in a caste system. And whatever you were born into, there was no way of working a way out, but you could just hope that in the next life, you could reincarnate into something greater. That's their entire religion in a nutshell. And so people would take their kids, and when they were born, they would break their arms, they would break their legs, and deform them in such a way, so they stood on the, the street corner, they sat on the street corner, they would be so hideous that people would, would donate money to them just out of pity. And he's looking at this, and he's watching how she is caring for people with leprosy, and she's washing the wounds, and she's praying over them, and, and, and she's washing them, and he, he says, man, how, how terrible this has got to be. And what you have to go through, because I, I, I could never do this. How can you bear, bear such a load without being crushed for it, he asked her. And this is what she said. My dear Senator, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. God hasn't called us to push forward our agenda. Remember last Sunday, we, we nailed our agendas on the cross. We nailed our will on the cross. We nailed our desires on the cross. Why? Because God's calling us to be faithful. I don't always get things right in life. And a lot of times, a lot of times I'll, I'll preach through my, my scripts and say, hey, I messed up here, I messed up here, I messed up here. But one of the things that I've learned about marriage is that we aren't called to be successful we're called to be faithful. 
We aren't called to, to push forward our agenda. We're just called to be faithful. In closing it down, let me ask you a question. Does God have your heart? And I'm not talking about the blood pumping organ in your body. I'm talking about the heart being the center of your emotions, the desire to drive. Does God have your heart? Because if he has your heart, he has all of you. Does God have your, your heart? And finally, are you praising God? Because here's what I noticed. When we're praising God, it's really hard to talk about what we don't have. Would you pray with me, church? Dear God, I just thank you for this amazing time that we've had today, God, and just, Lord, I pray that you'd pour out grace and mercy upon us. Help us, Lord, to seek you. Help us, God, to, to chase after you with everything we have. I pray, God, that your spirit would move upon us and your, you would call us, God, to, to service, call us to, to step above and beyond ourselves. And I pray right now, Lord, for Marlon's place and the great ministries that they have going on there for foster kids and for foster families. And I pray, God, that your blessing would be upon it. And I pray, God, that you would use us to, to bless them as well. We just pray this in your holy name. Amen. We are a people, connected people, all in God's love. We are a church, connected church. You know you are